Chapter 17 of Radio Boys in the Secret Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Voice of Landis, Zanesville. You can find me at VoiceofLandis.com. Radio Boys in the Secret Service by J.W. Duffield, The Eskimos. Presently, a few more of the castaways arrived at the top of the stairway, and the rest of the men were either on their way up or were hastening towards the steps of ice. They ascended single file, as much of the upward passage was not wide enough for two or more to walk abreast. Among the first to reach the upper landing was an anthropological professor of a New England college, Dr. Olaf Anderson. He was a Dane and had made studies of the human race in all the northern countries of Europe and Asia and in Arctic America, including Iceland and Greenland. No sooner did he get a view of the two fur-clad strangers a hundred and fifty feet below than he forgot his hunger and physical weariness. Here was something that aroused a more lively interest in him than could even prospects of food or home. It did not take him long to verify Watson's suspicion. Inuits, he exclaimed. How did they get here? You ought to explain that better than anybody else, Professor, said Watson, who had made the acquaintance of the anthropologist on the steamer. They must have been trapped here in some way, declared the latter, and in that case they couldn't have been here less than several weeks. Good, cried Watson eagerly. Why good? Guy inquired. Because they couldn't have lived here that long without food, in some way to keep warm. That means they can help us. This prospect made Guy feel so cheerful that he indulged in a mischievous reply. You ought to be a detective, he said. The boy had hitherto given Watson no hint that he had discovered his occupation. What makes you say that? inquired the operative, looking keenly at his young friend. The way you figure things out, you'd make a good secret service man. I wonder how we happened to miss this landing place last night, and how the rescue steamer, which must have had a searchlight, failed to see the Eskimos, one of the men remarked. It was dark, and we didn't come this way, replied Watson. We started farther toward the eastern end of the iceberg. I haven't any doubt that the rescue steamer has been this way and picked up the boats and rafts without seeing the Eskimos. Probably they slept late, suggested Professor Anderson. They usually do, especially if they've had enough to eat. That sounds hopeful, put in an optimistic fellow, edging his way forward. The Eskimos see us, announced Carl. Let's go down there. The two Inuits, as the professor learnedly preferred to call them, seemed much excited over their discovery. They threw their hands over their heads and, with loud cries, started as if to ascend the steps of ice, but stopped when they saw the newcomers descending. The next moment, four gray-haired dogs, probably awakened by the cries of their masters, emerged from a cave in the ice and gazed curiously up toward the new arrivals. Guy fancied that they sniffed the air hungrily. "'We can eat them if we can't find anything else to satisfy our appetites,' Carl suggested. And the idea did not seem in the least repulsive to Guy. There was hardly enough luxury on the iceberg to encourage gastronomic fastidiousness. 
The stairway in the ice proved to have been fashioned by both nature and man. The Eskimos, desiring access to both sides of the iceberg, fortunately had a rude sort of pickaxe that made the work of creating such access comparatively easy, especially since nature had half-formed the steps in advance. By the time the leaders of the visiting party had arrived at the foot of the flight near the entrance of the Eskimos' cave, the last of them had reached the top landing, and a long zigzag line of men was descending single file. The Inuits, after their first stir of excitement, stood quietly, stoically, it seemed, waiting for developments. Fortunately, the professor could speak their language well enough to make himself understood, and soon he was jabbering almost glibly with the short, round-faced, narrow-eyed, brown-skinned, black-haired wanderers from the north. The stoicism of the Eskimos was stoicism only in general appearance. As close attention to their eyes proved, the latter glistened with joy and eagerness. The delight thus expressed, however, was turned to a dull-orbed disappointment when they learned that the strangers were only a party of shipwrecked travelers in worse straits than the two Arctic inhabitants of the iceberg. There was not much encouragement in the appearance of nearly half a hundred hungry men begging for something to eat from their scanty store. Professor Anderson's conjecture as to the cause of the casting away of the Eskimos was correct. They had been hunting with a sled and a team of eight dogs on a field of ice off the southern coast of Greenland. Two bears had been discovered by them on an iceberg that had become frozen fast in the field, and the two Inuits had driven to this mountain of solid water, where they left their dogs and sled and climbed up after their game. It was then they made their discovery of the stairway of ice, but the ascent was more difficult and even dangerous because of the uneven, irregular character of the steps, which slanted in all directions. However, they reached a lofty ledge on which one of these bears was perched, and so severely wounded him with their harpoons that he slipped and fell, bounding down the steep and jagged ice a hundred feet or more. At this juncture, almost as if caused by the rebounding impacts of the bear's eight or nine hundred pounds, a thunderous noise rent the frosty air, and the two Inuits knew that the ice field was breaking. With all possible speed, they hastened down to their sled and dogs, but before they had gone halfway, they realized the seriousness of the situation. The iceberg, together with a considerable section of the flow, had broken away, leaving no solid connection with the land. They passed an hour or more, helplessly gazing at the rapidly widening gap between them and the mainland and then decided that a long season of hardship was in store for them unless someone on shore learned of their predicament and came to the rescue. The wind was blowing almost a gale from the land now and was steadily widening the breach. They climbed to the highest point they could reach and erected a flag of seal skin between two upright spears. The two Eskimos, whose names were Ama and Tarmik, now made haste to prepare quarters to protect themselves and their dogs from the severe weather that threatened to come heavily upon them. With their pickaxe and harpoons, they dug a cave in a wall of ice, and by evening they had hollowed out a room large enough to accommodate themselves and their four-footed companions. They removed the bear's skin and spread this and another on the floor to sleep on. A few smaller skins they spread out for the dogs, in the entrance, they piled up blocks of ice, leaving only sufficient opening for ventilation. 
Then they lighted some blubber and a stone lamp, and soon the ice-walled room was very comfortable. But they had a scant supply of blubber with them, and the bear they had slain, although large, was lean. Fortunately, however, they discovered a deposit of driftwood partly embedded in the ice on the other side of the iceberg, after they had fashioned the rude steps of the stairway into a series of safer footholds. Much of this wood they dug out and carried over to their cave as they feared a further breaking of the ice. Two days later, this fear was realized. Large portions of this section of the ice field broke off close to the berg on both sides. On the side where the cave had been hollowed out, only a small but well-elevated area was left in front of their lodge. Meanwhile, they kept their flag at the top of the stairway as a signal of distress to passing ships but none hove in sight, and life on their floating island became more desolate and lonely day by day. The days grew into weeks, and they lost all reckoning of time. The weather was stormy, snow and sleet fell, the wind blew heavy gales, and the iceberg moved rapidly, with the currents of air and water. Bear meat was their chief article of diet until the quarry that got them into trouble was devoured, then they began to kill their dogs, slaying one at a time until only four were left. During much of this time, when the weather permitted, they were busy with hook and line, trying to catch fish for their larder, but they only caught a few. They would have set some traps for birds, but after the first few days afloat, none flew near the iceberg. Both of the Eskimos were asleep when the Herculanea was sunk within a cable's length of their ice cave and they knew nothing of the disaster until informed by Professor Anderson. Cooped up as they were in their walls of frozen water, their slumbering ears had not been quickened by the explosion of the boilers or the screams of panic-stricken passengers. Moreover, their flag of distress fell from its anchorage, so that the castaways did not see it in the morning. The professor elicited all this information from the Eskimos without a reference to the hunger of his companions, much to the disgust and impatience of some of the latter when they learned the nature of the, to them, unintelligible conversation. But he did not wish to frighten the two Greenlanders with the condition of affairs among the shipwrecked party, and he had a professional and scientific curiosity that demanded satisfaction almost as urgently as did the gnawing in his stomach. By the time the story of the two Arctic men had been drawn out with many questions, the professor had a pretty clear idea of the extent of the assistance that might be expected from them. Turning to his companions, he said, Gentlemen, we want to be careful what we do. We must treat these fellows with perfect justice. They have hardly enough to keep their own souls and bodies together. Whatever assistance we get from them must be obtained by appealing to their good nature, for they are good-natured fellows. About all they have that can be made into food is four dogs, and they would hardly supply one good square meal for all of us. Most of the men present were intelligent and disposed to regard the situation with calmness and fortitude. There were a few, however, who grumbled at the words of the Danish scholar, and one of them asked with a half-snarl, What do you advise us to do? That's a question that I propose to put to the Eskimos, replied Anderson. We might ask them for food for the women, but we men can live through another day and night without anything to eat if necessary. We'll follow the example of these fellows, dig a few caves in the ice, and with a very little fire inside, we can keep warm. In that way, our fuel will last several days. 
That's good advice, said Watson, with a nod of confident approval. Talk to them in that manner and let them know that we're not going to do them any harm. Ask them for suggestions, and maybe they'll be able to offer plans that will help us a lot. The professor turned again to the Eskimos and talked with them for several minutes. Then he reported as follows. They're willing to help us all they can. They say they'll give us one of the dogs if we have to have it, but suggest that we try fishing and see what we each get. How will we do that? asked the half-snarling critic who had spoken before. We haven't got any tackle. The Eskimos have a good supply and will let us have several lines and hooks and some dog meat for bait, on condition that we give them some of our catch if we have good luck. That's reasonable enough, declared Watson. Ask them for some tackle and bait and some tools to dig a few caves. The professor did as suggested and was given four strong lines with good steel hooks and a short-handled metal tool, best described as a cross between a hoe and a tomahawk. Where it had been manufactured would have been hard to conjecture unless it was a bit of native blacksmithing. The handle was of walrus bone. That's fine, exclaimed Watson, seizing the tool. One man can cut a big hole in the ice with it in a few hours. Come on, let's get to work. With the professor and Watson again in the lead, the visitors filed back over the ice mountain stairway to their own camp. There they found the women and children huddling around the fire and looking despairingly unhappy. Cheer up, urged Watson heartily. We've brought good news. There's a couple of Eskimos on the other side of the iceberg, and they've given us some hooks and lines to fish with and a tool to dig some caves in the ice. We're going to be all right now until a rescue ship finds us. A full account was given to the women regarding the discovery on the other side of the iceberg, and they became more hopeful as they watched the energetic activities of some of the men. While several began an attack with the Eskimo tool and other improvised implements on a wall of ice, several others went down near the water's edge and threw the baited hooks as far out into the water as the lines would reach. With bits of wood for floats, the hooks were kept ten feet or more from the wall of ice under the water. Watson was proving that corpulence is not necessary for the greatest physical efficiency in a cold climate. With his tall, angular, meatless frame, he was perhaps the most vigorous in the entire party. He was ever ready with a word or cheer or advice in an emergency. Probably he saved one or more of the men from an uncomfortable ducking when he offered the suggestion before the lines were thrown into the water. Everybody dig a hole in the ice to brace his feet in. If we catch any fish here, they're liable to be big ones, and they'll pull us in if our feet slip. The fishermen followed this advice, using pocket knives to cut the ice and selecting rough, jagged places in which to sink their footholds. Then they angled for an hour without success, and some of the men began to show signs of impatience. But these discontented ones had taken no part in the activities of the morning, merely standing around and scowling when they were not forced to exercise in order to keep warm. One of them, Guy noticed, was Mr. Gunset, and three others were seamen. There were six, all told, who were conspicuously dissatisfied, and they were observed several times grouped together and conversing in a manner that indicated no working sympathy with the rest. "'I'm afraid we're going to have trouble with those fellows,' Watson remarked to Guy as the two stood watching, the anglers ready to lend a hand should a powerful fish 
swallow a hook. I'm surprised at Mr. Gunset, said Guy slowly. And yet, I'm not either. He's the strangest contradiction I ever heard of. Have you noticed that funny change in his voice lately? He doesn't talk very much now. Yes, I noticed it. What's the cause of it? Any idea? Watson did not answer, for something more interesting just then claimed his attention. He sprang forward to assist one of the fishers who had more than he could handle on his line. Guy followed, also forgetting Mr. Gunset's voice. Fortunately, the line, consisting of tough, twisted gut strips as strong as cable, for it required all the strength of two men to prevent the fish from winning in the tug-of-war. Slowly, Watson and Potter, the latter a Baltimore Commission merchant, pulled the struggling, jerking, floundering fellow up over the edge of the ice, and a great cheer went up as a hundred hungry eyes beheld a silvery, brown-spotted king herring, almost four feet long. Hooray! shouted Watson as he pounced on the magnificent denizen of the sea with both hands. But he was unable to hold him, and it was all two men could do to pin the slippery fellow to the ice, while a third cut his head off with a pocket knife. End of chapter 17 Recording by Voice of Landis, Zanesville. You can find me at voiceoflandis.com.